0: Hello again, everybody. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb, and this is the Transporter Room, the intersection of sports, transness, sci-fi, gaming, all things nerd and geek, and a lot of other stuff. And we come off of one holiday, Hanukkah, and I hope those who celebrate had a blessed one. And we've got Christmas, Kwanzaa, and Festivals for the rest of us are coming up. And if you're looking for that special holiday gift Coming up in our interview segment, I have a gift idea and the person who created it just for you. But first, looking at news and notes from the last week, college football has a playoff. Alabama will meet Cincinnati. Georgia will meet Michigan. After all the chaos we thought we'd have, things went pretty much to form. Now, one pro football league is down to two. The Canadian Football League has the match set for the 108th Grey Cup. It'll be the Hamilton Cats against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, and it's set for Hamilton this coming Sunday. And the NFL is in the throes of the playoff race, and I'm rather happy, Steelers 20, Ravens 19. Always good to beat Baltimore. In Outsports, my colleagues and I had some great stories over this last week. Sid Ziegler had a profile on Furman University wide receiver Ryan DeLuca, who came out to his entire locker room and his team to a man rallied around him read this story it was really good Alex Reimer gave us an intro on Dirt Track racer Dustin Sprouse out game fighting hard in the Dirt Track World Championship and Brian Bell featuring the Queer Wrestling Index 200 the top LGBTQ pro wrestlers of the year this is something that's going to be a continuing series for this next week check it out and Shelby Weldon had a story in the FA Cup women's final. It was Chelsea against Arsenal. And Sam Kerr, the Australian international for Chelsea, was nailed on the 100th anniversary of the of the FA banning women's soccer. 100 years to the day, Kerr had one of her best games ever. And Chelsea's broadcast team will let you know how good it was. The attack breaks down really before it's got started. And here comes Chelsea again and Kerr is quicker than and Moy. Can she find room for a shot here? It's Kerr, it's two! And she's got her goal this time. She can break again here. Kerr, flag stays down. It's Sam Kerr, can she find a finish? Oh my word, it's wonderful. What a goal from Kerr. A goal fitting of the occasion from one of the very best in the world. Sensational, Sam. Chelsea three, Arsenal nil. Two goals for Kerr in a three nil victory. And afterwards she talked about how she pulled out such a performance in such a big game.
1: For your friends and family watching back home, what's your message for them? Uh, yeah, I love you guys. I wish you could be here. These are the moments of the player that you play and wish your family was here, but they're probably all home. My girlfriend's here, i to put on a show, but yeah, let's go.
0: <laughs> oh, by the way, US soccer fans know who her girlfriend is. It's U.S. National Women's Team midfielder Christy Mewis, and the two played against each other in the bronze medal match in the Tokyo Olympics and made the couple public, in a sense, a few days after the Games ended. Inclusion just keeps on winning in 2021, and that inclusion extends to the pool. And a shout-out this week to University of Pennsylvania swimmer Leah Thomas, the senior from Austin, Texas, has been off to a sizzling start. And after five dual and triangular meets in the Ivy League this past weekend, she was at the Zippy Invitational at the University of Akron, the first multi-team meet of the season for Penn. And she had a really good weekend. In the 200 and 500-yard freestyle, she took down the meet record, Akron's home pool record. Her time also eclipsed the Penn record and the Ivy League record. Oh, and she ran times that beat the NCAA's A qualifying standard. Now that means her ticket is punched to compete at the NCAA Division I Women's Swimming and Diving Championship in Atlanta next March. She also grabbed a win in the grueling 1650 freestyle where she broke the meet, pool, and school records. And the time was good enough for the NCAA's B qualifying standard, which in the sense is a wild card based on the time. There's also one other part of the story. Leah Thomas is a transgender woman, and she's one of the handful of trans student-athletes who have competed under the NCAA's transgender student-athlete regulations now in their 11th year. Her performances also have the opportunity for her to make some history. Thomas could be the second trans student-athlete to earn a conference title in Division I. She would join Montana track and field's Juniper Eastwood, who won the title in the mile at the Big Sky Championships in 2020. She also has the opportunity to be the second student athlete and the first in Division I to earn All-America status or even a national championship. CeCe Telfer achieved both at Division II Franklin Pierce in 2019. She was a track athlete who won the national title in the 400-meter hurdles. But certain outlets and people have felt the need to come at Leah Thomas and belittle her efforts because of her story. Now, Thomas is swimming on the women's team after swimming more than two full seasons for the men's team at Penn. Until this season, she hadn't competed in a meet since late 2019, and Ivy League swimming was canceled due to COVID concerns last year. The NCAA rules state that a trans female student-athlete must be on hormone replacement for at least one year before being allowed to compete under the gender by which they identify. In response, a number of outlets, the New York Post and the Daily Mail, being the most prominent, have made it a point not only to belittle her, they've misgendered her in their reporting, and they did something that violates journalism style, referring to her dead name. Now, the radical copy editor says it best using a trans person's birth name or formal pronouns without permission, even when talking about them in the past, is a form of violence. I agree with that 100%. The Associated Press style book, the Bible to journalists. Recommends that reporters use the name by which a transgender person now lives. Reuters also recommends that reporters always use a transgender person's chosen name. For some outlets, like you know the right-wing clickbait sites that always try to do a dogpile on trans people, I expect nothing more from them. Dogpile on trans people, unfortunately, is what they do. I expected from a lot of people on social media who just seem to have an axe to grind against trans people. There are certain things, however, I just can't let slide. One of those is this headline that I've read in a number of outlets. "Pen trans swimmer stokes outrage. No. Leah Thomas is stoking nothing. People who have a pointed agenda, be it to see anti-trans legislation passed in this country, certain commentators trying to be edgy, and people who just don't like trans people, they're the ones stoking outrage. And why? What is the percentage in coming after a college student-athlete and accusing them of transitioning just to win at sports? I wrote an article about that. I'm going to put that down in the liner notes. What's the percentage in having every other paragraph be a means to subtly misgender them? This is pointing to one of the new unwritten rules in sport in this era of inclusion. We can accept transgender women in sports as long as she always loses. I'm not naive. This isn't going away as much as I or any of us would want it to. Leah Thomas, based on her performance so far, is going to be a story, even with the continued monster movie hysteria of certain people who are, quote, lost in the sauce of transphobia, as noted influencer and educator George Lee would say. To those who wish to engage, in Godzilla versus Mecha Godzilla type hysteria, ask yourself this What is the percentage in going after a person you've never heard of in a sport that you most likely don't care about in a conference that you didn't care about until some clickbaiter with an agenda got you all twisted on some ginned up nonsense? To Leah Thomas, congratulations on some excellent swims this weekend, and keep it going all the way to the Ivy League Conference Championship in February, and to the NCAAs in March. Enjoy this senior year, enjoy your senior year, and keep bringing all of you in every space. And that's the red alert signal, meaning it's break time, gotta give love to the sponsors, but when we come back, one of the up and coming scribes in sports has a book out and it recalls a history of when women first built a league of their own on the gridiron i'm carly chardonnay webb this is the transporter room stay with us Welcome back to The Transporter Room. I'm your host, Carly Chardonnay-Webb, and in our interview featured this week, a friend of the show who always have, has a lot to say and now wrote something that had a lot to say that gives a window into a sporting history that few people know about. Sherman set the Wayback Machine for the 1970s. For those of you who believe that sports just became woke, no, sports in one way or another has always been woke. And in many ways, you can trace the roots back to the seventies. It was a decade when many things changed in regards to issues of race, issues of labor peace in sports. New leagues were formed and you saw the rise of women in the old ball games, passage of Title IX. Leagues were formed, more opportunities. but one, And one of those stories was on the gridiron. The National Women's Football League, which started in earnest in 1973 and ran well into the late 1980s. But few people remember that this league was there. It started at the same time that the NFL... Rose to power as perhaps the most powerful sporting league in the world. This story may have been buried if it wasn't for two intrepid sports journalists: Lindsay DeArcangelo, noted women's basketball writer, and Brittany De la Creta, freelance sports writer who, in my opinion, has done some of the most important work in sports journalism this year. And together, they wrote a book, "Hail Mary: The Rise and Fall." Of the National Women's Football League. I'll say it right now this is a Carly Webb Book Club selection and a Carly Webb Put It in Your Stocking for the Holiday selection as well. It was an excellent book, and I'm proud to have one of the authors here in our forum. Friend of the show, they're back, Brittany De La Creta. Welcome to the Transporter Room. Energize. Hi, Carly. Britney, good to have you back. And first, congratulations on what well, was an excellent book. I'm I'm going through my second read of it right now, and I remember reading some of the articles back then, and I was like a, I was like a little tyke back then. I was talking like seven, eight years old, reading about wow, there's going there's a women's football league too. Wow, it's gonna. I mean, the bases were being covered. In the 1970s, what, with all the writing you've been doing, especially in the last year, because you've broken some important stories and put some important discussions out there, the Leisha Clarendon story earlier this year, the SI feature on non-binary athletes as well, again, some of the most important sports reporting this year, what led you to also tackle this particular project and this particular subject?
1: This league was so exciting. I feel, and I know Lindsay feels this way as well. Like this is a once in a lifetime kind of project. I feel incredibly privileged to have gotten the opportunity to tell this story um, or at least part of it. I, I know there's more coming from other people and hopefully we will continue to learn more about the league. But I discovered the NWFL in maybe 2018 I was working on a column for Bitch Media where I was the uh, sports columnist at the time. And it was just about the tackle leagues, uh, the women's tackle leagues that are currently playing. And I'm a history nerd. All of my pieces just have a lot of historical context. And so I was looking for a book of some kind that would tell me about the history of women playing football and I could not find anything really like what I was looking for and that's how Lindsay and I actually got involved together um we were friends and I was complaining about the lack of books about women in football and she said well you should write one and I was like well I know very little about football so you will write it with me (laughs) and um that's where the idea for a football book came from and um, as we started to research the history, I learned about the Toledo Troopers who are in this book, they are in this league, they are the winningest team in pro football history to this day, men's or women's. And I started looking into them and they probably are the team with the most readily available information about them for you know obvious reasons. But I had a lot of questions. I was like, who are they playing? <laughs> if they won, you know, they played nearly 70 games. Who did they play against? There must have been other teams. And that was where, you know, this whole thing started to open
0: up. And speaking of open up, you open up this book and there's just so, there's just so much information. And I remember you said in a tweet about the book not too long ago, it would take a whole another decade to pour through how much you still don't know about this time in this league?
1: Yeah, so we estimate that there were 19 teams that took the field at some point as part of this league. We also are probably wrong. I'm sure there are teams that we don't know about or that tried to start. There are teams that are mentioned in newspaper articles that we you know, don't know if they ever took the field or ever organized or not. Um, and then you say that there was 30 to 50 women on a roster and you're talking thousands of women who took the field for at least a game or practiced at some point as part of this league. And we couldn't tell the story of every one of those teams in this book, it would just be absolutely too much. And so we knew from the beginning that there had to be some kind of a container around the research for this, we were going to have to have a stopping point, knowing that this was just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what is out there. Our hope is that other people will fill in some of those gaps. Now that the book is out, we hope That other players that we didn't get a chance to talk to or weren't able to track down will come forward. There's a book coming out in spring 2022 about the troopers called We Are the Troopers. It's by uh, a man named Steve Guinan, who is a Toledo local, and he's been working on his book for a very long time. There's documentary coming out about the Houston team. So there are, you know, a lot of projects around this league that seem to be happening. And so my hope is that not only will Lindsay and I continue to learn more about this league, but other people will step in to fill in those
0: gaps as well. You never meant this book to necessarily be the definitive history. You wanted it to be a jumping off point for more information to get out there.
1: Yeah, I think it is the f- First book of its kind. It's the first material that really dives into the league as a whole in the way that it does. And I hope it's work that people will build on. But I think that there is no way to tell every single story of every single team in one piece of media because there's just so much there.
0: This book wasn't just dates and history and scores. This was more, this was as much a novel as it was a nonfiction history piece they're characters I'm just mm-hmm. wondering who are some of your favorite characters? who are some of the people that looking back and doing the research, doing the interviews that you look back and said, Hey, if this was a if we didn't, if this person didn't actually exist, Hollywood would have to invent them <laughs>
1: So Lindsay and I would have different answers to this question because we divided the teams in half. And so we each got to know different players differently. So my answer, however, um, well, first of all, I don't think you have this book without Linda Jefferson Uh, for people listening. Linda Jefferson was a member of the Toledo troopers. She was a halfback and she is like accepted just known as the best player in this league. I don't think that there is a single player on any team that would disagree with the assessment that Linda Jefferson was the best player in the league. She retired with more touchdowns than OJ Simpson, Jim Brown, or Walter Payton. Um, She was on the cover of national magazines. She made television appearances. Um, She did it all. And, she's someone who I think this book in this league just is not as fun or as rich without Linda. Um, The other one though, who has become like a breakout star of this book who people keep tweeting at me about is a player from the Dallas blue bonnets named D a Starkey and Starkey played on the line and she was, you know, by her own admission, a hard drinking, loud talking butch woman who just really wanted to smash into some people and chase women. That was kind of all she wanted to do in life. And every one of her quotes is a banger. And she's definitely <laughs> become the breakout star <laughs> of Hail Mary, I think, according to social media.
0: Yeah. That was one of the first per- people I was thinking about because. I was reading this book and, you know, just, I'm reading this book to do the research, just writing stuff down. And I wrote down like D.A. Starkey, like about more than a dozen times <laughs> because there was always that nugget. And it's just interesting. That's another thing. Um, we're looking at this from the perspective of now and so much has changed. And unfortunately, so much as hasn't in many ways, but what were some of the things that struck you in regards to the tenor of the times? In regards to things such as how women's sports and how women in general are looked at then, juxtaposed to right now, even with some of those things and issues still existing right now, what really struck you, raised your eyebrow, and says, "Wow, it was that deep."
1: Yeah. So, it, I mean, this is a really interesting book because part of our job as writers is to contextualize what happened then through the understanding we have now of the time and the social movements that were happening and at the same time you don't want to put words in people's mouths right like a lot of times you'll hear oh the women's liberation movement was happening in the 70s and that must be why these women played football and you ask the women and they're like who gave a crap about the women's lib movement right so like it's this balance of of wanting to recognize that yes they're breaking barriers and maybe they're The ability for them to do that and the social environment that allowed women to play football maybe was helped along by the fact that there was women's liberation kind of happening in the background, but that these women, most of them, not all of them, just didn't identify themselves with that movement, right? So these were things that we were balancing, but I think the most surprising to me Honestly, I expected the coverage to be sexist and I was so unprepared for how bad it was. Mm -hmm. It was, I mean, Lindsay and I just were sending each other clips. We could not believe just how bad the coverage of these women was. And, you know, women's sports coverage is still sexist. I just, I don't think I was fully prepared <laughs> for <laughs> how um, condescending and objectifying and really gross uh, the media coverage of this league was.
0: I'm reminded of one quote in the book by an award-winning columnist, Jim Murray at the LA Times. He said, anything resembling pro- professional football was purely coincidental. Uh There were others who were quoted who were, again, award-winning sports writers who just really, really wanted to, really went out of their way, it seemed, to ensoul these athletes.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, it's really interesting to think about because I don't think they're wrong in saying the quality of, the play on the field does not look like an NFL game, right? Like when you say pro football and people think it's going to be NFL level that removes the context, which is that boys have the opportunity to play football. They're in pop Warner from the time they're little and they play middle school and high school and college football. And by the time they get to the NFL, they've been playing football their entire lives. Women are and girls are denied that, that, Opportunity, even now, mostly, but definitely then. So, while many of these women were athletes and they were quick studies and they picked the game up very quickly, often the only experience they had playing football was, you know, playing pickup games with their brothers or like the neighborhood boys. And they learned the game as adults. And then we're thrown into pro football. And so what you see, though, like when you look at the quality of women's pro- uh, semi-professional football now, the teams that have been around a while with players who have been playing a while, the quality of that play is very good. And it's because they've had the, the time to develop the fundamentals and to to learn the game. So I think like there's something to be said, but to write the quality of the game off as something that you wouldn't want to see just erases the entire context of what was happening. And it fails to recognize how quickly they picked up the game because to be playing at a level that people wanted to go see, even for like having just learned the game is also incredibly impressive. They're playing it at a a high level, particularly for how long they had been playing.
0: Well, that's the one thing all the way around is that, athletes are athletes, and it's just a matter of getting adapted to the game itself. On the theme of that last question, what are some of the things that looking, looking back and looking to now, what's something that you noticed as you were writing that book has changed and something that hasn't in how we see women's sports then to how we see women's sports now?
1: I think what has changed is that slowly people are seeing the need to invest in women's sports. And I think the WNBA is a really good example of what is possible. The NWSL is an example of what is possible. The just exponential growth those leagues have seen over the last few years as investment and exposure has increased. But in terms of what hasn't changed, I'll speak specifically to women's football here. The women who play now, I have interviewed many of them, and I have interviewed women who played in the 70s, and their quotes are sometimes interchangeable about what they go through. Uh, You could not tell the difference. And what I mean by that is they all still work full-time jobs, They put their bodies on the line for no money and in fact often are paying to play the sport that they love. They are financing these teams through like merch sales and raffle tickets and like community sponsorships. And most people don't even know they exist. (laughs) All of this is incredibly consistent. Um, you know, when Lindsay and I had our book launch here in Boston, the Boston Renegades uh, football team, a bunch of members of the team actually came to our book launch and um, we interviewed their owner um, for the book as well. But for people that don't know, the Renegades are kind of like the modern day troopers. They are the best women's football team in the world. They have six championships, which is the same number that their, their male counterparts with the Patriots have. Um, and they are still fighting in the same way that, that, you know, the women were back then. So that really has not changed. It's shocking how little it's changed in almost 50 years.
0: Tell me about it. Saw them play over the summer. And that's the, and that's one of the things is in itself, you were talking about, it's a matter of, again, it's just when people are exposed, it's exposure matters. and. In a wider point, that is something that you've really put out there in a lot of the writing you've done this year, getting people exposed to the things that they normally don't see. In a sense, when you look back at this year for you, talk about how vital that mission has been for your own, for your own self, beyond just journalism
1: part of the reason I entered sports writing in the first place is because I didn't see the kind of work I wanted to read. And so I often think that that's the work that I'm doing is the work that I'm actually interested in. It's like, what would I want to read? Um, if, if I were the reader and where are the gaps in what's being covered, covered. And I mean, I think that really matters. We can look at my, Sports Illustrated story about non binary athletes, which you mentioned earlier. And in that story, I looked at, you know, the PHF, which used to be the NWHL, the Professional Women's Hockey League. I looked at their trans inclusion policy and spoke to Harrison Brown, who uh, retired from hockey so that he could start hormones, so he could start testosterone because testosterone was considered a doping agent and he could not stay in the league if he wanted to medically transition and the phf just came out with a new trans inclusion policy this year and while it's not perfect um testosterone now has a therapeutic use exemption and someone like karrison brown would be able to remain in the league. And so you can see that just exposure, right? People being exposed to a new idea, the league being able to see a player say, I wish I could still play and I can't is enough for, in some ways, it's not the only reason, but it's part of, it had an impact on them going back to their policy and being like, well, this isn't working because it's already pushed at least one person out of the league. How can we avoid doing that in the future? Mm -hmm. So I think that's where I, I come to like your question about being exposed to things is that sometimes we don't know what we don't know. It's like how many people don't know that the NWHL, I mean the National Women's Football League, the NWFL, which Hail Mary is about, existed. And we have a lot of hopes about what will happen. Maybe they will end up in Canton, like the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League is in Cooperstown. You know, a league of their own was able to do so much for that league. And I kind of we hope that Hail Mary will be able to do something similar for this
0: league. Looking back and doing all this research for this book. The one thing that struck me, and it strikes me even now in regards to how the how National Women's Soccer League is given short shrift and how and how people continue to just trash the WNBA. What is it about team sports and women that rile up certain people so much? People
1: are just really uncomfortable with the idea that women can play sports right and it becomes about masculinity both in that women who play sports are somehow seen as masculine because sports is such a masculine domain and so that's automatically a negative and they're going to be knocked for that but they can't win because at the same time they're also going to be knocked for not being as good as (laughs) men in men's eyes right um And so I think there's just something really threatening to not just the status quo, but also like gender roles, gender norms, as they are generally accepted in society. And there is a certain segment of people who are really insecure about, um, about that. And those are the people that are going to be riled up by this, you know, what I've actually really loved about, um, seeing the reception to hail Mary so far is I knew that women's sports fans were going to be into this book. I knew queers were going to be into this book. I knew, you know, women's history people would be into this book. But what's been so cool is the straight dudes who are like real big football history nerds who don't even bat an eye and they're like, "Oh, this book is crucial, and I need to own it." And they recognize it as part of the history of the game. And there's a segment of men who have been trying to like track down merch from these teams and they want to collect it. And, it, you know, to me, that's that's what shows you, The only people who are threatened by the women's game are people who are insecure or like, don't actually understand, but the people who care about the sport, they know immediately, inherently this league was important. And I want to know everything that I can about it. Like some, a bunch of dudes from football history, Twitter made us a Wikipedia page. Like the league now has a Wikipedia page because of those people, you know, because of those people. So that's been really cool.
0: Are you also finding that effect is also coming into view in some of your other work? For example, what was some of the reception that you got from that Sports Illustrator article that you wrote? In fact, it's in front of me right now. And again, very important article and a very important discussion that sports needs to have. What kind of reception were you getting from colleagues in the business, from fans, Mm -hmm. From people who from people who watch and love sports and also watch and love it for a living.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously there were people that were critical of it, but far and away that was not the reception. And the story went pretty viral. I believe it's one of the top ten most read stories on Sports Illustrated um, of their like feature length stories for the year. And that was largely positive reception. I heard from a lot of people who just had never considered this before, the idea that non-binary athletes are struggling to fit into this very binary organized system. I had... So in the piece, you know, Lasia Clarendon is one of the main characters, WNBA player Lasia Clarendon. And they use all three pronouns interchangeably. And so one thing that me and my editor, Julie Kligman decided to do was to alternate Lesha's pronouns on a sentence level. And we might be one of the first mainstream publications to do that, to not just pick one pronoun and run with it and to alternate in that way. We had so many people say, I, if you had told me that you were going to do this, I would have said it would be confusing, but I never got confused reading it. And this changes the way I think about the way I'm going to write. I know that there are at least two or three diversity and inclusion consultants in journalism who are using this piece as um, to teach. And as an example of how to do this kind of writing, which is, I think, the highest compliment And as I mentioned earlier, there's been direct impact in that at least one pro league has updated their trans inclusion policy um, to be more in line with some of the suggestions that I made in the story. So I think there really have been tangible results um, from it. And I think that it's changed the way some people are thinking and talking about trans folks in sports, because it's true that like Trans athletes have become this like political lightning rod and this talking point. And we hear people say trans women are women and trans men are men, and that's true. But there's this entire segment of athletes who don't fit into that very neat little motto that people like. And what do we do with those athletes and what is the impact on them? And I, I, I am glad to have been able to raise some of those questions and get that conversation going.
0: Within that conversation, you have a pair of athletes that are right on my mind right now in terms of Clarendon who after the tra- after the trade to the Minnesota Lynx went on a tear oh yeah they did and went on a tear and became a fan favorite and then a couple months after that trade Quinn goes out for team Canada mm-hmm. and is a key piece of their joy ride to a gold medal how important were these two events and these two people to furthering that conversation.
1: I love that you brought up Quinn. I think they get lost a little bit sometimes in this conversation, partly because, you know, their Canadian national team and their NWSL team, the OL Reign have been so accepting that in a lot of ways, it's been a sort of seamless transition for them, obviously not completely. There has been times when they've been misgendered and it's been a learning experience, but they've received so much support and such little backlash. And in the lead up to the Olympics, all of the conversation was centered on Laurel Hubbard, who was weightlifting you know, for New Zealand and the first openly trans woman to compete at the Olympics that I think some of the non-binary athletes, including Quinn got lost in that conversation. And like, I mean, Quinn is the first openly trans athlete to win a gold medal at the (laughs) Olympics. That's huge. Um, And then I think Leja being this, like, he was such a difference maker from the minute he got to Minnesota, right? Like the whole team changed. Um, Such a leader on the court for that team. And not only that, fans love her, right? (laughs) And I think it's just, it goes to me to show that there is space for players to be their full selves and they will continue to contribute to their teams, maybe even more so because they can come and bring their full self to the game. Um, and show up in a mentally healthy space, which makes a difference for their, you know, on-field performance, but also that there is fan support and fan acceptance for them too, and they will find their audience um, if we just let them be who they are.
0: This year has been a year where sports in some ways has gotten more queer. Leisha Clarendon Quinn, and we can't talk about Quinn enough. Um, seeing Laurel Hubbard just get on the platform, seeing Carl Nassib coming out, see more and more people in men's pro sports coming out, and then hitting and then hitting the field in in college sports. But still, it's the best of times, but it also can be. But still, also the worst of times, as we're seeing in Texas and we're seeing in Florida and we're seeing across the landscape still going after the kids. As you cover this, this tug-of-war, this push and pull, is there a light at the end of this tunnel? Is there a reason for optimism, continued optimism, even coming off this year and even coming off the backlash, do you think?
1: I think this is a hard question to answer because there are some places where I want to say, like, yes, there's a lot to be hopeful about, I look at the international Olympic committee's new framework that they came out with. And while it is not a policy that does not, it does not force any of the international federations to do specific things. It's the first time we've seen real language that centers the impact on trans athletes of policing their bodies and, the kind of medicalization and really intrusive testing. Um, And so I'm hopeful that for people who really care about sports being a fair and inclusive space and are dedicating time to learning about this, I see a shift. I see people starting to like move on this and realize that being more inclusive um, doesn't actually, have to mean, um, changing the fairness, quote unquote, fairness of sport and recognizing kind of human rights over the right to what, like win it competition, right? Like these things should not be weighted equally. I'm seeing that shift start to happen from like the sporting community, the people who, I think are asking questions in good faith and maybe just need to do more work on educating themselves. But then in the political moment, I think we're seeing something very, very different. And I think that we are seeing trans folks and trans kids specifically really demonized. And so those two things seem at odds with each other. And so I guess my fear is that the sporting world can only go so far if the political landscape is going to try to like criminalize and ban certain things. And so I think what I'm looking at is how these two um, systems are going to kind of come against and interact with each other and impact each
0: other in the coming years. In your mind, how can the fan impact this?
1: I think if we're going to talk right about professional sports or even like elite level sports, which are not directly impacted in the same way by some of these bills that we're talking about, right? Like a a sports league, um, or like a governing body can choose to be as inclusive as they want to be. I think it's so important for leagues to see fans embracing, um, these athletes I think as we mentioned like Leisha Clarendon being a really good example of how much he has brought to the W just by being who he is and how many people are fans of the W because of Leisha I I think is a testament to and it's like I think if leagues see that people are not going to abandon them over this, and in fact, maybe new fans are going to show up because they understand this space to be a safe one for them. I think that that's really important.
0: I would I would agree with that. Just as a person who's an athlete and as a fan, one thing I'd love to see sports leagues do, and you covered a little bit of this last year in an article you did that to me is another article that is people engage in. This particular issue, as far as participation, and inclusion, in sports, they should read the article you did on transgender boys getting out there and playing. One thing I'd love to see leagues do is, for example, stop listening to people like the Women's Sports Working Group. Just stop listening to the. Don't let the. Don't let people whose prime directive is exclusion in the room. And we know who those people are. Yeah. Say, no, don't let them in the room. Inclusion is where we're at. That's what I did like about the IOC.
1: I will say, I think that the IOC's new framework actually undercuts some of the arguments that the women's sports policy working group is trying to do because they had tried for, for people listening that don't know, they are trying to encourage high school level sports to adopt what was at the time the IOC policy about um, monitoring hormone levels and testosterone and all of that. But with the new IOC framework, um, that is no longer accurate or applicable. And so I do think that this new framework
0: undercuts some of their argument. Now, away from all the writing. Because I know you're, you're, you've got the, you've got some core nerd in you. And that has been the, that's been, that's the lingua franca of this show as well. After all, it was started by nerds. nerd. Where now with the book written, doing a few articles as well. What are you, what are you grooving to in a sense to kind of like take the edge off?
1: <laughs> um, what do I do to take the mm-hmm. edge off is a, it- Fascinating question. I take a lot of baths <laughs> <laughs> when I'm not writing it in my bathtub, honestly. <laughs> um, but I think it's just surrounding myself with community, which has been hard in the pandemic, but finding ways to do that. Um, I think, and you know this too, probably as a trans person who is covering trans athletes, often it's not great. Like the news we're covering is not great. The things we're reading about uh, our community is not great. And the way I like get through that is that in my personal life, I have very few cis people zero straight people like i just i surround myself with people in the way that when i'm not at work these kinds of questions don't even come up i don't even have to really think about it and that is to me the best like self-care i can give myself
0: what is your answer to those who would look at say this book and they're going to be there's going to be some who look at this book and look at some of those writing and say Oh, that Brittany De La Crada is just being all woke. <laughs> you're trying to you're trying to make my go woke, go broke. You're making my sports too woke. I don't want to think about this. How do you answer to those who may, for example, look at Hail Mary and say, this is just this is wokeism?
1: Well, I would say that sports have always been political. And if you think that's not true, you're not really paying attention. I mean, we can look back at sports, you know, even back to like, say the Victorian era and the beginning of the 20th century, which is when we start to see sports organized in a different way, right? When it, um, and the way that women were excluded, the way that black people were, were excluded right from the beginning right or like siloed or um told like you know women right from the beginning were like their uterus might fall out (laughs) if they exerted themselves too much cis women obviously there but so it has been we didn't make it i didn't make it political (laughs) the system made it political from the beginning and i just don't think you can separate those it's political. I mean, I also think about the fan experience. How many queer folks, trans folks, folks of color do you know that don't feel comfortable going to a Major League Baseball game, that don't feel comfortable walking into an NHL arena as a fan, right? So there is just, it's just political for all of us. It always has been.
0: Well, one thing about the book I'm going to say that really educated me the number of black coaches who are given an opportunity in the women's pro game. The the sheer number. I, I, that was the thing I didn't... I learned something I didn't know. I didn't realize that. like That was a door. A team hired Miriam Motley as a coach. Mm-hmm. Who had been lobbying to try to get a coaching job in the NFL, NFL for years. Prior to the job he ended up getting in the women's pro game. I have, that was the big piece of education for me out of this book more than anything else that struck me was this vehicle of opportunity. And that's something actually we've seen throughout women's sports. We saw those vehicles of opportunity come out out of necessity.
1: Yeah, that's the thing that I think is super interesting about this book too, is as we were researching it, Lindsay and I were like, so I think we can pretty confidently say the the first black coach in pro football history was in this league, right? And similarly, we're fairly confident that the first woman to ever coach pro football coached in this league. And she was, uh, her name is Paralee Adams and also a black woman. And she is a really good example, I think, about if we're going to talk about this coaching pipeline and diversifying The coaching pipelines, you know, when the league started a newspaper reporter asked one of the teams, why they were coached by men, if they were a women's team. And the response was, well, women don't know the fundamentals to be able to coach. And that's because they'd never been given the opportunity to play. And so Paralee Adams was a player on the Columbus pace setters. And she transitioned into a coaching role. And this was in 1978 is when she transitioned into a coaching role. When you look at the pace setters by the late 80s, all of their coaches by that point were women and they were all former players. And when you look at the 12 or 13 women coaching in the NFL today, who I will say stand on Paraleigh Adams' shoulders, they, many of them come from the women's semi-pro game. So this league and women's football by extension creates these pipelines for diversifying the ranks of coaching, both by gender and race.
0: Now, for someone who wants to get this book, where can they get it?
1: They can get Hail Mary pretty much anywhere books are sold. We would love it if you support your favorite local indie, but you can buy it anywhere.
0: I was hoping you'd say that because <laughs> I supported an indie to get this book. <laughs> yes. And final question to end, to end this up. Do you ever see a time when we're going to look and look down at the games and say, and we won't even have to say, well, sports got queered up because it's just a part of the, it's just another part of the unit. It's just part of being at the game.
1: I think women's sports is mostly there. I mean, I even think about how nonchalantly WNBA players at this point, they don't even need to come out. They'll just, it'll be there, you know, partner's birthday or like an anniversary and they just post it to Instagram and that's kind of like you're like oh cool that person's queer great like it's mm-hmm. it's not even a thing at this point um for the most part and so i think women's sports is mostly there men's sports we're not there yet but i'm i'm hopeful i'm hopeful we've had players coming out both in pro sports and college sports and the reception has been pretty mild. And what I mean by mild is there's no huge backlash. It's been mostly okay. And to me, that gives me a lot of hope and I'm, you know, I don't want to say hope again, but I'm hoping that other queer players and athletes in men's sports who see the acceptance that the players coming out have been met with will feel like it's safe enough for them to do so too. And I, I'm really like, maybe once the dam breaks, it's just gonna, you know, um, happen from there. But I think we're close.
0: I'd be inclined to agree. I think, I think the dam in many ways is cracking Mm -hmm. and we saw it, in this year. And also we're seeing that we're not only looking at that damn cracking for the future, we're seeing people reach back into the past and bringing these stories to light and bringing how we got here to light. And your book, Hail Mary, you and Lindsay are a major part of that. And as a sports fan, I say, thank you.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I, you know, I will say, I know we're wrapping up, but I will say that when we started researching this book, we assumed there were going to be queer players, but we didn't know if any of them would want to talk about it or if they saw it as directly connected to the league. And so when we discovered that many of them hung out in lesbian bars together and that some of the teams even kind of formed in those lesbian bars and they viewed the teams as an extension of their community we were very excited to be able to add that part which is you know it's Lindsay and i's history it's our these are our elders that we are telling the story of and to be able to incorporate that and make our queer history visible in this book about football was really exciting for us
0: and if you want to know more (laughs) transporter room nation you gotta read the book. The book is Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall, the National Women's Football League. Lindsay, D'Arcangelo and our guest today, Brittany De La Credo, the co-authors on it. Go get it. I'm 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 through my second reading. It's more than worth your time. Brittany De La Credo, thank you for being on the Transporter Room again. And always, you're a friend of the show. You're always welcome. We're all you're always welcome back to get beamed up.
1: Thank you for having
0: me, Carly. Yeah, we're going to beam you back down now, Brittany. Thank you for being with us today. And thanks to all of you for being a part of the transporter room, not just this week, but especially in this year where there's been so much change. And I, taking the reins halfway through solo, your support is what's given me the fuel days when I didn't have it. So to all the people who are listening, thank you. And if there's something you want to see or something you want to say about what we're doing here by all means leave a message for me at our our Twitter page, at our Facebook page and at our new Instagram presence transporter room 10 forward because everything I do here at the transporter room I do it for all of you the people who support us that's the transporter room for this week I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. Live long and prosper and steady as she goes. I'll catch y'all next week.